0: In 1982, the noted Jewish scholar and Israeli historian, Pincus Lapid, a very well-known Jewish scholar, shocked the religious world with his book, The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective. And in this book, after analyzing all of the of the data, all the, the different... Uh, evidences, he concluded that Jesus of Nazareth was raised by God from the dead on the third day. Without a doubt, he argued that all the alternative explanations, now this is a Jewish historian, an Israeli historian, a Jewish scholar, and he says when you consider all of the evidence, none of the explanations against his resurrection hold water. Mass hallucinations, the idea that his body was stolen, which was an argument picked up in Matthew, that the disciples may have gone to the wrong grave, or that he perhaps even swooned on the cross and didn't really die. He said these explanations do not hold water. But here's the kicker. Lapid was not a Christian. And when he died in 1997, there's no evidence that he ever became a Christian. But he knew enough to argue that the evidence was without doubt that Jesus of Nazareth had been raised from the grave. Here's what he wrote in his book. If the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith based only on auto-suggestion. That is, we just decide we're going to become a movement. Or self-deception without a fundamental faith experience, then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. And yet, Lapid argued that Jesus raised from the grave... Was only preparation for the true Messiah. He never bowed the knee to Jesus. Now, what led Lapid to argue against Jesus' messianic claims while still arguing for the fact that this man was raised from the grave was, as I said last week, he had no place in his theology for a Messiah who would be crucified. He had no place in his theology for a Messiah that would be raised in the middle of history from the grave. Yes, this Jewish scholar believes in a future resurrection. The conservative Jews believe that. They believe that there is coming a general future resurrection. But there was no place in his theology for a crucified and resurrected Messiah in the middle of history. Of course... At this point in the Gospel of Luke, the disciples, they would have disagreed with Lapid on one point and agreed with him on another point. Ironically, the disciples would have disagreed with Lapid on the fact that he'd been raised. Lapid believes he was raised. The disciples do not. But the thing they would have agreed on is the fact that the true Messiah is not going to be crucified a true messiah is not going to be delivered over to a cross and be humiliated and shamed what they agreed on was that the messiah is not going to be raised from the grave in the middle of history that was one of the central perplexing concerns for the disciples and that's why they don't believe at this point now the women believe they were the first to the grave the the angels told them he's not here he is risen The women believe, and they've gone back to tell the 11 disciples. Peter runs back to the grave at this point to check on things, but the disciples at this point do not believe. And of course, to disbelieve the resurrection is to ground your hopes in something this worldly, okay? Which is no hope at all. And that's where they are. That's no gospel at all. To disbelieve... The resurrection is anti-gospel. And as we pick up this unique account to Luke, we see the anti-gospel according to a disciple named Cleopas. Look with me in verse 13. That very day. Now, what day is it? It's the Lord's day as Revelation describes it. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday Sunday. Uh, probably at this point Sunday afternoon. The very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. We don't know where Emmaus is, um, but we do know this. It was about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they're on a seven-mile walk. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now, while they were talking and disgusting together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. He just appears. Must have shocked them. Verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, there are several times uh, after Jesus is raised from the grave that he was not recognized initially. You see it in In Matthew 28, you see it in John 20, John 21. And here it appears that the disciples were somehow prevented from recognizing him. The text just doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us what prevented them. I do believe there's some kind of uh, divine hindrance. But I think there's something else here as well that you don't typically read in the commentaries. But keep in mind when God created everything in Genesis 1 and 2 he created everything good when Adam and Eve sinned um chaos uh resulted okay and so a curse comes on creation which would have affected the beauty of God's created order okay it would have it would have affected what we see in creation i think the colors are are not as as uh, bright and vibrant as they were in the garden of eden it's kind of like when you're watching The Wizard of Oz and then they come in the land of, of the munchkins, you know. It's black and white and all of a sudden you see color. I think um, the black and white is perhaps uh, illustrative of what we see today. I think there's a, that the, the beautiful creation was affected by sin, which means our human bodies were affected by sin. You say, well, Jesus wasn't a sinner. That's correct. He did not have a sin nature. But Romans 8.3 says, He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. What does that tell us? He had a human body like ours. He did not have a sin nature, but he had a human body like ours, which means at the age of 30, he would have looked 30. He aged. He would have had lines around his face. Uh, his body would have been subject to viruses. And, and flus. And, and he would have had fevers perhaps. Uh, he thirsted. He, he, he would get fatigued. He would, he would hunger. His body was subject to life in a fallen world. In fact, he was subject to death. Okay? And so, uh, here's a man who has a body like ours that ages and, and aches and is subject to the finitudes of life in a fallen world. But when he was raised, here's what Paul says about his body. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Jesus' body after he was raised, was his body. It wasn't a new body. It was his body. But now the mortal has been swallowed up by the immortal. The inglorious has been swallowed up by the glorious. The perishable has been swallowed up by the imperishable. Which means, I believe, that his physical appearance would have been affected in his glorified, resurrected state. Okay? And so, when they don't recognize Jesus, yes, I believe there's divine hindrance involved, but I also believe that his physical appearance has been affected by the resurrection. There's something glorious about his... It's not a, it's not a ghost body. He doesn't look like Casper. He looked like a human. He was a human. But he looks different. There's a glory about him, okay? And that's why I believe they didn't recognize him. Think about it. You say, well, Pentecost hasn't come. They didn't have the spirit to to give them illumination. Well, you don't need the spirit to recognize someone physically. Pilate recognized him. Pilate wasn't a believer. And so that's, I think, what's going on in this text. And I think Jesus knows all this. And interestingly... He doesn't begin his conversation with them by speaking about his resurrection. It's not a, there's no resurrection pronouncement. He begins with a question, which is a common approach to Jesus. And just as a side, this is a good model for us when we engage people in evangelism. I've heard people say, I don't know how to share the gospel. Begin with questions. Ask people where they are. Find out where they are. It shows empathy. It shows sympathy. It shows concern. It shows love. And he begins with a question here. Notice in verse 17. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now, countless people have opined, they've given their opinions as to who these two disciples are. Uh, There have been many who said, well, this Cleopas here is the same as the Clopas that you find in John 19, verse 25. And in that case, Clopas's wife is named Mary. Tells us there in John. Um, But that's far from certain. Others have said the details here are so personal that one of the disciples, perhaps the other one, was Luke himself. But we just don't know. It's just not important. More importantly here is the irony. Are you the only one around here that is clueless as to what's going on? And the irony is, he was the only one that had a clue of what was going on. Notice in verse 19. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth. A man who was a prophet. Mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Now we haven't read anything that we disagree with yet, have we? No, but what we're going to see here is what they believe about Jesus is inadequate. It's insufficient. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Here they do have a wrong view of him. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. These disciples are anxious, they're sad, they're depressed, they're discouraged. And I want to submit to you this morning that uh, much of the angst that we experience as believers, we're not even talking about unbelievers here, much of the angst and anxieties and discouragements and disillusionments and despair that we experience unnecessarily as believers is related to either um, underestimating who Jesus is are misunderstanding who he is. Both errors are committed in this passage. First of all, they underestimate him. Notice in verse 19. And he said to them, What things? They said concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. We agree with that. But he was more than a prophet, wasn't he? He was also a priest. And... He was a king. He is a king. They misunderstand. They underestimate who he is. And it's likely you underestimate who he is as well. That's why you're so easily discouraged. That's why you're so prone to fear and anxiety. That's why there's always this kind of perhaps low-grade sense of unease in the pit of your stomach. It's why you're so prone to finding identity replacements rather than finding your identity in Jesus, in Jesus alone. It's because you underestimate who He is. He is our prophet, our priest, our king. He is the son of David. He is the son of God. He's the son of man. He is our redeemer. He's our savior. He is our hope. But notice as well, they also are wrong about Him. Notice in verse 21. We had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. The irony is, He was and He had through His cross and His resurrection. But from their view, a Messiah who needed redeeming Himself was no uh, Redeemer at all. You see, they believe their problem was outside of themselves. We're like that too. If only God would redeem my circumstances. That's the kind of redeemer you look to. You look to a redeemer uh, who will change your circumstances because my real issue is my health. My real issue is my marriage. My real issue is my financial situation, my career, my portfolio. Uh, If only this would change, if only my Redeemer would come through, uh, then I would be happy and whole. It's because you're fixated on the temporal. Uh, These disciples were fixated on the temporal. They were under the thumb of the Romans. But they did not perceive that their real problem was not Rome. Rome. Their real problem was their sin. And so they did not understand understand the remedy they needed. You see, when you misdiagnose, you're going to look for the wrong remedy. And that's why you have uh, even Christians who, who dig deeper holes for themselves. If I only could possess this car, so you go into debt. If I could only get out of this, um, this fog I'm in. So you you overdrink, You over medicate. You're looking to the symptoms as the problem. And the symptoms aren't the problem. The problem is in the heart. The problem is idolatry. The problem is uh, identity amnesia. And looking to identity replacements. And when you misdiagnose, you you misperceive what the remedy is. The real issue is the heart. And what we need is a Savior, someone who will save us from our sins. That's who Jesus is, and they had misunderstood that. This also teaches us, a very important point, um, that when we are in circumstances, and we've all been there, haven't we? When we are in circumstances in our lives which tempt us to think that God has thrown us a curveball and He has forgotten about us or His purposes for us have failed, okay? Because you would have never written out the script for yourself the way it's been written out. You're thinking and feeling like these disciples. But the resurrection is the event. It is the event of events that confirms to us God's plan for us has not and will not fail in the end. You think about the fact that Jesus has been betrayed by one of his closest 12. Okay? So betrayal from friends will not thwart God's plan. Not only that, this this disciple that betrayed him was possessed by the devil. The devil can't thwart God's plan either, all right? Not only that, Jesus is put to death. Death can't thwart God's plan either. The resurrection is the event that reminds us that not even the devil, wicked people, or death itself can thwart God's purposes, and it appears at this point these two disciples are utterly confused because they don't understand that yet. Yes, there were rumors. There were rumors that uh, Jesus had, uh, had risen from the grave, but they didn't know what to believe. And in the end, Cleopas' gospel was no gospel at all. He saw Jesus, or he had hoped Jesus would be the Messiah who would take care of their physical and temporal issues. And There's no gospel unless Jesus has been raised from the grave. That's important. The gospel is grounded in the resurrection. If Jesus has not been raised, then everything that is broken in the world remains broken. If Jesus has not been raised from the grave, everything sad in the world remains sad. Every evil in the world remains. ...remains unjudged. But Jesus has been raised. And that's what Jesus wants to convey to these two disciples. So we've seen the anti-gospel of Cleopas. Now we're going to learn about the gospel according to Jesus. Look with me in verse 25. Jesus takes them to school. And he said to them, "...O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken." Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, why doesn't Jesus just cut to the chase here? Why doesn't he just say, hey, look, here's the marks. I'm Jesus, okay? I was the one that was put on the cross And I was the one who was raised from the grave. Why doesn't he just cut to the chase with these two disciples? Well, because the source of their despair was their failure to believe the word of God. Okay? And because that was their problem, that had to be their remedy. So he took them to the scripture. But secondly, we learn from Jesus, and as I said last week, it's the word of God that has the the inherent authority to change a person's heart. It's only the Word of God that can change a person's heart. The Word of God has the very attributes of God Himself. And so when the Word is read, the Word is preached, the Word is taught and spoken, the the Lordship of God comes to bear on that situation. Okay? It's the only hope we have in evangelism. In fact, if you've been like me, perhaps you've been in a situation where you just cannot even conceive that this person would be interested in the things of God. And then you begin to talk to them about the Word of God. You begin to share uh, with them about the Christ of the Word of God. And you realize God went before you. The Spirit of God preceded you there. He was at work in that person's heart long before you ever opened the scriptures to them. And that's what Jesus is doing with these disciples. This is clearly a rebuke, but as I said earlier, he's not being unkind. Jesus is kindness incarnate. He's just straightforward with them. You see, these two should have known better. It's very clear that the disciples of that day were well steeped in the Old Testament. They would have known the Old Testament. But in their unbelief, and it's very clear they do not believe at this point, they did not have a place in their worldview for a crucified and resurrected Messiah. Why? Because their view of their sin was too low. Okay? And there are a lot of people today that don't like to hear about how sinful we are. I don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about that. But the fact is, if we don't understand how sinful we are, we can never understand the gospel. Okay? As Jesus has said earlier in uh, Luke, He says, He who has been forgiven little, loves little. But he who has been forgiven much, loves much. And so the more we understand how deep our sin is, the more we can understand how glorious His forgiveness is. The more we understand how glorious His forgiveness is and the cost that was required to achieve that forgiveness, the more we will love Him. These disciples did not quite understand that at this point. Hence, Jesus takes them to the Christian scriptures. You say, I thought He took them to the Old Testament. Keep in mind, the first century church perceived after Jesus teaches us about Bible interpretation that the Old Testament was their Christian scriptures. Okay? So he takes them to the scriptures. Now keep in mind, these two would have known their Old Testament, but they did not really understand the Old Testament. There's a way of reading the stories and knowing and being familiar with the names and the stories and not understanding the main point of those stories. Reminds me of Mark Twain. Mark Twain one day really irritated his wife and she did something she had never done before. She started cursing at him and he started laughing at her and she's cursing at him and this only made it worse. And she all of a sudden asked him, why are you laughing at me? He said, sweetheart, you know the words, but you don't know the tune. She knew the words of cursing, but she didn't know how to curse, in other words. These disciples knew the words of the Old Testament, but they did not understand the tune, okay, to the song. The tune is Jesus himself. Now, he takes them to uh, what, uh, what the scripture tells us here is the uh, Moses and the prophets and then to all the scriptures. Um, perhaps you're new to reading your Bible. When it speaks to Moses there, what is that referring to? It's referring to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were written by Moses. And so when it uses the language of Moses, it's referring to what we call the Pentateuch, or the Law, or the Torah. Jesus first took them to Moses to show them Christ in the first five books of the Bible. And then He takes them to the prophets. Now, who are the prophets? Um, The prophets are essentially, you can boil it down to this. There are... Three major prophets. Now, when we say major, it doesn't mean they're more important than the other prophets. It just means they have their large books. Ezekiel, um, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. Those are the three major prophets. And then there are 12 minor prophets. They're minor prophets not because they're unimportant, but because relative in size, they're minor to the other prophets. And so you have the three major prophets. Then you have the 12 minor prophets. Prophets like Nahum and and Zephaniah, and Zechariah, and Haggai, okay, and Obadiah, all those books that uh, perhaps you've never read before. But those 12 prophets, uh, those 12 minor prophets, and the three major prophets are the prophets that Jesus took them to. And then he took them to all the other scriptures like the Psalms and the Proverbs and, and Job and Ecclesiastes to the historical books like Samuel and Kings and, and Chronicles. He's taking them through the entire Old Testament and he is showing them, it says he interprets. He interprets to them. Now this is the word, we get the word hermeneutics. And I know when you looked in your... Uh, Bulletin this morning, you saw a seven-mile hermeneutics lesson. You, you wondered, what in the world is this about? We need to know this term. The word her- hermeneutics simply means it's the science of biblical interpretation. He's giving them a hermeneutics lesson right here. He's opening up the Old Testament and he is showing them that the Old Testament is not about principles for living. Okay? You don't need principles for living. You need a heart change. You need a Savior. You don't need to be like Samson. God forbid any of us are like Samson in here. You don't need to be like David. God forbid any of us be like David in here. You don't need to be like Abraham. God forbid anyone be like Abraham in here. You need a Savior. We need a Savior. The Old Testament is preparing us through the types and the shadows and, and the ceremonies and all the different uh, offices and the promises and the prophecies of the one to come. Second Corinthians 1, verse 20, Paul tells us, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Where did he learn that from? He learned it by how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament and then taught that interpretation method to the apostles. All the promises. What are the promises? Every promise. All the prophecies. All of those shadows. All the different things you see in the Old Testament point us to Christ in some way. And in fact, perhaps one of the most underrated verses in the entire New Testament related to this, in Acts 13... The Apostle Paul, in his first recorded sermon, hear what he says in verse 32. He says, And we bring you the good news. That's the word for gospel. Acts 13, 32, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers... What did He promise to the fathers? Everything. Everything that He promised. What God promised to the fathers, that is those in the Old Testament. What God promised to the fathers... This He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Do you get that? In the resurrection, all the promises, all the prophecies, all the hopes, find their fulfillment when Jesus is raised from the grave. Now, we still await the consummation when He returns... And so God has given us down payments like the Holy Spirit. Having believed, we're marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. But that inheritance has been promised to us and has been achieved through the resurrection. And so Jesus is teaching uh, these disciples how to interpret the Old Testament. Now next week, we will look at some of the specific text, okay? Okay. Uh, We will look at some of the specific texts. He's going to do this very thing with the 11 disciples when he returns back to that room. We'll look at that passage next week. But suffice to say, for today, the horror of sin is one of the real central themes you see in the Old Testament. God creates everything good, and then after sin enters the world, everything just goes haywire. So you see the horror of sin in the Old Testament... But you also see the holiness, the justice, the righteousness of God, which means He's going to judge this sin. And it's good that He judges sin. You think about what's going on over in Iraq right now. Imagine a God that doesn't judge sin. That means ISIS gets away with their wicked behavior. Right? So it's good that God judges sin. And so you've got in the Old Testament this real theme of just uh, of sin and the horror of sin, even when Israel is experiencing their heyday, David is an adulterer. David is a murderer. Okay? Uh, even the best of men in the Old Testament need a savior. And so you have the horror of sin on one end, you have the justice, the righteousness, the holiness and the wrath of God on sin running a parallel line through the Old Testament. And yet, we also see that God is a God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So how in the world can God judge this horrible sin and save the sinner? The only answer is the cross. That's the only solution. And that's why Jesus said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? Now keep in mind, God didn't have to save us. He could have wiped us out immediately upon our sin and started over. He didn't have to save us. But once He determined to save us, the only way to save us was the cross. Because in the cross, God judges the sin and saves the sinner. That is, the sinner who repents of his sin and throws himself upon the mercy of God in Jesus who took the wrath of God for the sin. And we know that God received the payment because he raised Jesus from the grave. That's what Jesus is teaching these disciples On the road. As i said before, Genesis 3.15 is the mother promise of the Bible uh, where God promises after Adam and Eve sinned that in spite of their sin, He's going to send a Redeemer. He says, I will send one from the seed of the woman and He will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That becomes the stage, okay? That becomes the stage of the Old Testament. And this sets the stage for the rest of Scripture. And the rest of human history uh, will be played out on that stage. The promise of this Redeemer who will come. Therefore, every piece of Scripture that follows is played out and has a redemptive context. Every text, every passage we read after the fall comes in a redemptive context. Because we don't need principles for living. We need a Savior. That's what he's teaching them. And although this story is unique to Luke, it's played out in the other gospel writers. For instance, in Matthew 5, Jesus in 5.17 says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Do you get that? He is the fulfillment of what Moses wrote. He is the fulfillment... Of the prophets. And then, for instance, in John chapter 1 verse 45, a beautiful verse, Philip found Nathanael, said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Who did Moses and the prophets write about? They wrote about Jesus. You see, when you study the scriptures, you have one of two approaches. You approach the scriptures... Looking for a Messiah. The Messiah will be you or the Messiah will be Jesus. Okay? It's that simple. If I'm, looking, if I'm looking for principles for self-help, then I've made myself the Messiah. But if I recognize I can't help myself, I need a Messiah, then when I come to the Scriptures, I will read them rightly. Looking to Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 5, he's speaking to the Pharisees. He really irritates them here. In verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. And then he goes on in verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Isn't that remarkable? That's what Jesus taught. And as important as this entire uh, narrative that he's teaching, notice he's hastening to the scriptures. And it reminds us that experience alone is not going to change anyone's heart. He could have just said, look, I'm, I am Jesus. Uh, ask me any question that only Jesus would know and I'll answer it. Um, But that's not what he does. He takes them to the Scriptures. And it reminds me of Luke 16. Remember the rich man who goes to Hades? And he goes to Father Abraham and he says, Would you send Lazarus back from the grave to warn my five brothers? And you remember what Father Abraham told him? If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What we're seeing here is that the Word of God, this is the pattern. It's being established right here. The Word of God is the inherent life-changing authority to transform the human heart. Now, back in verse 28 of chapter 24, they are compelled at this point. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther. He is not playing games here. He is actually, he has other people to see. Okay? That's what that means there. He's not playing like he's going to go. Uh, he's not trying to trick them. He acted as if they were go- he was going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. They don't know who he is yet. They just know there's something different about this man. And he's been proclaiming the word of God, and it compels them. Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. They're compelled by this man's person, and they're compelled by this man's handling of the scriptures. That is the glory of fellowship. For those of you that have been on a mission trip, You have experienced this, I promise you, if you're a believer. You've been overseas and you meet someone who can barely speak English and immediately kinship. Deeper than even some of your own flesh and blood. Flesh and blood you've known for 40, 50, 60 years. And you meet someone on the mission field who has the word of Christ hidden in their hearts, immediate kinship. Now they don't really understand fully who He is. But they do know one thing. This kind of fellowship over the Word... Where this man is explaining the, the word and, and showing how Jesus must suffer from the word. They are compelled by this man. They do not want him to leave. Such is the glory of fellowship. That's true fellowship. True fellowship is not just hanging out and talking about ball games. I love that. That's, there's nothing sinful about that, okay? But that's not what forms true fellowship. True fellowship is centered on the gospel. Okay? Koinonia is centered on the gospel. And until you have a gospel culture, there will be no fellowship. It will be uh, more like a community center. It's the gospel that forms and forges true fellowship. And these disciples are so drawn into this man. Now notice verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread. Now, who's the uh, guest? Jesus is the guest. He's at their house, right? But he's taken over. Isn't that interesting? Um, He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. It tells us that there's something unique about his new resurrection body. You don't see any of that before the resurrection where he would just vanish and all of a sudden appear. Um, We'll see that next week as well. He just appears to the disciples in that room. Um, But imagine I invite you over to my house for dinner. And you just kind of take over at the head of the table. All right? You don't sit at the end of the table. that's, That's my chair. My kids know that. Don't you? Yeah, that's right. But imagine you decide you're going to take over at the end of the table and you distribute the food. That's what's going on here. The guest has now become the host. Why? He's Lord. He's Lord. He's Lord in every situation. There's no situation in which he is not Lord. This is his world. That's, that's what's being conveyed here. Now, there are echoes here, and we don't have time to go into it. I wish we did. Of the, of the feeding of the 5,000, he did the very thing. He took the bread, he broke it, and we saw back then that that pictured and pointed to the Lord's Supper. I don't believe this is the Lord's Supper. There's no wine that we can see, and he doesn't speak about uh, the words of the Lord's Supper. Um, he doesn't repeat the words of the institution. But I do think it's intended to convey something very important. When he breaks that bread and they recognize him. Now keep in mind the breaking of the bread followed after the exposition of Scripture because the breaking of the bread is not self-explanatory. He has explained to them the Scriptures. Now he breaks the bread and they remember. That That bread that is broken represents the crucified Christ. And then they see him. And they recognize Him. In other words, what's being conveyed here, you can only know the true and living God through the cross. Why do you say that? That sounds arrogant. That sounds narrow-minded. It's for this reason. The true and living God is not only holy and just and righteous and judges sin. The true and living God saves sinners. And the only way a a, a God, the true and living God, can be just and righteous and judge sin and save sinners is by breaking the body of the Son of God. That's what he's conveying here. And once that body is broken upon the explanation of Scripture, they behold Him. They see Him for who He is. And this is what's remarkable. And and we're going to close here. You see here... the the transformation order of any believer. There's a transformation order. There's an order that takes place in a person's life that transforms this person from the inside out. Notice what they say in verses 32 to 35. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures. Okay, here's the order. First of all, it says their minds were instructed. He opened to them the scriptures. That's why we attend worship service in part, so that the scriptures can be opened. There are churches across the world where the scriptures are not open. But when the scriptures are opened and they're explained, okay, the mind is instructed. Out of that comes what he calls the heartburn, the holy heartburn. He says, did not our hearts burn within us? So the mind is instructed. That, now, this is the steps of transformation. This is what takes place. If you're a believer today, this has happened to you. Okay? If you're not a believer, this has not happened to you. It has to happen to you for you to be saved. It happened to me on August 29, 1991, uh, one of my teammates in Alabama invited me to a service. I didn't want to go. I went to get him off my back, and within five minutes of the service, my heart had been warmed. I had a new interest in the things of God. I had a new interest in the word of God. I had never had that. I'd made a public profession of faith. I'd walked an aisle. I'd, I'd been baptized but my heart had never been burned. It had never been warmed. And so here, he opens up the scripture, notice, and then they say, our hearts burned within us while he opened to us the scripture. So the the mind is instructed, the heart is warmed, or to use their language, burned, then note thirdly, their feet are turned into a different direction. They rose that same hour And returned to Jerusalem. It changed everything for them. Changed the way they think. Changed the way they feel. Changed the way they act. They returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven. And those who were with them. Now think, they just walked seven miles. Okay? Now they're walking back those seven miles. Notice as well, fourthly, it changed their words. So their mind was instructed, then their hearts were changed, were, their hearts were warmed, and then their feet were turned in a different direction, and then fourthly, their mouth was opened. Verse 34, saying, the Lord has risen indeed. That's where we get that famous phrase on Easter. He has risen indeed from the new song these disciples are singing. The mouth was instructed, the heart was burned, and then their feet were turned in a different direction and now they have a new song in their mouth. He is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now, this is the only place in the Gospels where this is spoken about. First Corinthians five, 15, 5 does speak to that, but we don't know when he appeared to Simon. We just know that he did. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them In the breaking of the bread. That is the steps of transformation. It begins with instruction. You must understand who God is, what He has done for sinners in Jesus Christ through His cross and His resurrection. And then the Spirit of God makes your heart softened and warmed and burn for those things, okay? Then that changes your activity, it changes your priorities. It changes your actions and it changes the words you speak. You now have gospel words. You're centered on the gospel. It's what Paul said in Romans six seventeen. You obeyed from the heart, that is your will. You obeyed from the heart the doctrine that was delivered to you. So it begins with doctrine. It begins with teaching. And then you obey. That is your will is changed by your heart that has been warmed by that gospel. The question I would ask as we close, is that your testimony? Is that your testimony? Is the word of God glorious to you? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ a beautiful thing? Is it, is it the most important and real thing in your life? Has it changed the way you feel, the way you think, the way you act, the things you say? Are you, are you centered on the gospel? Is that your favorite subject, the gospel? You know, Pincus Lapid, he's a great example someone who can believe in a historical event and not be saved. Maybe you believe historically there was a man named Jesus who died on a Roman cross and was raised from the grave. But has your heart been changed? Do you see him as Lord? That is my my, uh, heart's cry for you this morning. If he is your Lord, but you realize your heart's been staled, ask him to soften your heart. So that your heart burns like these disciples once again. Maybe you've left your first love. And maybe you've never had this experience. And I would love to talk to you today about it. I would love to talk to you about how to become a Christian. I would love to share with you the gospel. About how to be saved by trusting in Jesus. Let's pray.